Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Entree Architect Podcast is now a member of Gable Media, the multimedia network that empowers global leaders in the architecture, engineering, and construction industries. Gable creates and distributes audio and video content that informs and entertains an audience dedicated to building a better world. Visit Gable Media to listen and subscribe to all your favorite architecture podcasts at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 332, Building Smart with Patrick McLamey. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more for free at RCAT.com and Gusto, easy online payroll benefits and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. Patrick McLamey, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, thank you. I have enjoyed uh talking with you the first time, and I'm sure today will be uh, even better. Yeah, I'm looking forward to today's conversation because we hinted at it a little bit in the last episode, but we had so much information to talk about in the last episode. That was episode 328. Patrick talked about his uh, rising through the ranks of HOK and becoming CEO and talked about 
uh, what architecture firms need to do right now in during times of crisis and his experience with that with HOK. And so that was a really great episode if anybody wants to learn about uh, Patrick's origin story and sort of learn about his whole journey, go back to episode 328. Today we're going to be talking about Building Smart, Building Smart International. Um, before we do that, let me just give you a brief intro. Patrick McLamey spent 50 years at HOK, one of the most respected architecture firms in the world, rising from junior designer to CEO and witnessing the firm's growth from a single Midwestern office to 27 locations all across the globe, uh, offering architecture, interiors, engineering, planning, and much, much more. Patrick's proudest association is with Building Smart International, which is what we're going to talk about today. They work to achieve open standards for the exchange of digital information in the building and infrastructure industries. Uh, Patrick was a founding member of Building Smart back in 1994, elected to a, as a fellow for his service in the organization in 2018, and today serves as international chairman. Uh, so I wanted to, we, we talked about it a little bit, Patrick, in the first episode, but we really didn't dive into it because we had so much to talk about. Today, I wanted to focus on Building Smart International. I think it's an important organization, and I know you're very passionate about it. Um, so why don't we start right where we left off? Um, let's start by explaining what Building Smart uh, is. Is uh, why was it created? Okay, well, um, thank you, Mark. I uh, uh, I think maybe the best way for me to approach this is to say, I'll tell you what it is, uh, but I first want to say why we started it. Okay, and it, there's a story behind it. Uh, as I was going up through the ranks in HOK, of course, I'm an architect, I'm an AIA member, and I would attend the local chapter AIA meetings and uh, always looking for answers to how we can improve our practice. And what I found was my fellow architects uh, did a lot of grousing about the mean contractors that they had to deal with. and the owners that demanded lower fees, and if we could all just get together and hold the line, we'd all get more fees, and uh, we'd have more fees to fend off those pesky contractors, and we would do better work. That sounds like a very uh, very familiar conversation. I've heard that many, many times. Yes, I, <laughs> I actually, Mark, and I finally got tired of it, and I, I began to realize that um, architects just talking among ourselves wasn't going to actually improve the process of designing and getting buildings built and uh, began to look for answers in other places. And I'll tell you one other little story that prompted me on this journey that resulted in building smart. And I call it the toilet seat story. It's a true story. Um, as I was a young project manager responsible for getting projects um, designed and delivered to the client on time with the correct uh, correct uh, scope and drawings and specs complete and so on. Scope, schedule, budget. That was my mantra. Scope, schedule, budget. Um, I began to realize that we were missing something. I attended a, this was a project that we designed for a courthouse in Oakland, California, across the bay from San Francisco. And the chief judge was a woman we were having a meeting in her chambers one day to talk about the design of the judge's chambers. And my designer 
the project designer was with me. And uh, we talked about uh, the size of the room and so on. And then she said, I want to show you something that's important to me personally. She took us into the little half bath that the judges have as a part of their chamber, which is a toilet and a sink. And the toilet, she pointed at the toilet seat, which was black with a split front. She said, I don't want one of those. I don't need a split front. I want a round oval, complete oval toilet seat, and I want it to be white, not black. So I said, I got it, and I wrote it down. And uh, I took the notes back to the office. And in those days, there were no computers. We had a secretary for the, the project who dutifully typed up the notes and put them in a file drawer. And uh, I kind of forgot about it because there were 101 other things. And the project was uh, completed by us. It went under construction. And I was as I was going through construction near the finish, I took a tour of the judges' chambers and found the exact black split seat, toilet seat uh, in her chambers. I was mortified. How could we have forgot, how could I have forgotten this important piece of uh, program information that the client really, really wanted? And I was so embarrassed that I persuaded HOK to pay to change all the toilet seats for all the chambers. I think there were 10 or 12. So it wasn't a major cost, but it was an embarrassment that in spite of my best efforts, I wasn't getting information that was conveyed at the beginning of the project all the way through to the end. Yeah. And that's another old story that every architect faces. And by then computers were beginning to be on the scene, but not yet as, as drafting tools or CAD tools, more for the secretaries. It was an improved typewriter. But I thought, you know, computers don't forget things. And I'll bet you there's some way for us to begin to embed information in a computer. And at the end of the job, we could use it as kind of a checklist. So I didn't have the full idea, but I knew that there were certain things that we needed. Computer was a sharper tool, a better tool than we had had access to. So um, those two things prompted me. One is architects just talking to architects wasn't enough to actually get at the problems confronting our industry. And two is that the architects were all about designing and we did our level best to keep track of details like the toilet seat, but we actually weren't very good at it. And maybe a computer could be better at remembering things than we were as humans. So that led me on a whole journey of looking for ways for us to change the way we work and looking for partners in um, outside of ourselves. I was frankly tired of going to AIA meetings and hearing the grousing. So I, uh, I started to focus on reaching out to contractors and software houses and engineers and equipment suppliers, people like the companies that make toilet seats. How could, because that's all part of the process, Mark. We all, uh, an architect is maybe like the conductor and the orchestra is uh, the people on our team and the engineers, but the contractor is also an integral part because if you have a good partner as a contractor, I'm not thinking of the contractor as the enemy here, but as, as my partner in getting things built properly, 
and the suppliers that supply equipment to the contractor, things to build the building with, or as I like to say, contractors don't really construct or build, they assemble. They assemble buildings mostly from parts that are manufactured in factories and brought to the site in a truck. So a contractor is actually more, a, a lot more like Henry Ford in assembling a building or assembling a car than a contractor is one brick or one stone pile on another these days. So that led me on a long journey and I ran into somebody who's become a lifelong friend, Ian Howell, who is uh, at that time was working for Autodesk. And Autodesk was, um, was started in Sausalito, California, near San Francisco. And when I met Ian, he was working for them in San Rafael, which is in Marin County near where I live. And he had an idea. He said, you know, uh, what architects and engineers and contractors and building equipment suppliers are missing is a way to integrate everything in one big process using software as kind of the glue that would tie us all together. And uh, uh, he, he, was, he had Autodesk interested in investing in a study to determine how we might get all these pieces to fit together better. He said, you know, everybody uses software now. By then, we weren't using BIM software. We were only using, it was CAD, the days of CAD, yeah. computer-aided design, a better way to draft. He said, you know, the contractors have software too. They have software for scheduling and for cost estimating. And, uh, and equipment suppliers have software that they use to either make their products or to offer it for sale and ship it and so on. Um, he said, if, if we can just put all this together, and he used a word I had never heard before, if we can get, if we can get interoperability, that's a jawbreaker word. Interoperability is a fancy tech term meaning, and probably many people have heard of it by now. It means my software and your software can fully exchange information. So if I'm an architect and I'm using CAD software and uh, I pass my information to the contractor with their software, they can actually read and understand everything that I've conveyed to them. And uh, today, um, in, in those days and still today to some extent, that is not true. That when we pass things to a contractor, the contractor very often can only read they can read our drawings, they can see the geometry of a BIM model, let's say, or, or a CAD drawing, but uh, they frequently resort to their own, they draw it again to do their estimating and their scheduling and yep. so on. And then when we give it to the owner to operate the building after it's completed, usually it's a bunch of manuals and so on. And for a big building, it fills up the manuals and all the paperwork fill up a good sized room. Uh, contrast that with automobiles, where when you buy an automobile, you might get an owner's manual, but you also get a whole set of guarantees of quality. You know how many miles per gallon you're going to get. You know what the speed of the car can be. Uh, you know that if you drive 60 miles an hour in a, in a rainstorm, you won't get wet. I can't say the same for buildings with a 60 <laughs> miles an hour rainstorm. And, uh, and the design and the uh, and the engineering and the assembly of the automobile is 
it's not all done by one company, but it's coordinated by one company to the point that automobiles have gotten better and better and better, especially with global competition. Same thing with computers, the same thing with smartphones. Uh, I always often asked my younger architects when I would visit an HOK office, who does the best design work in the world today? And someone would always say, well, of course, HOK does. And somebody else would say, well, no, I think it's SOM or I think it's one of the black cape designers. And I say, no, and I pull out my iPhone. I say, no, Steve Jobs. Look what Steve Jobs has done. He's transformed an industry. He's transformed the way people live and the way they communicate, the way, the way they get information, the way they, um, the way they get the weather, the way they get their newspaper, they use it as money, it's, and so on. And it's gotten steadily better and the price has gotten steadily lower. Now that's real design, but Steve Jobs did it in an integrated way and we were not integrated in our industry. We were fragmented. So uh, Ian Howell and I set up uh, a test group uh, under the under the the sponsorship of uh, Autodesk, but every company every company supplied uh, a technical person and a management person to test this process. How could we integrate design, engineering, construction, and manufacturing all in one, so that everybody could talk to and understand each other's software through this magic of interoperability? There were 12 companies involved. And uh, Ian and uh, Ian had gathered uh, a contractor from New York, a couple of big engineering firms that did mechanical, electrical, structural, architectural. There were some software companies there. There were a couple of manufacturers. I remember one was uh, uh, one was uh, Honeywell, the makers of uh, uh, equipment to to manage heating and cooling for buildings and so on. So. We studied this for a year. We all invested our own money, and I found it exhilarating. And at the end of the year, we demonstrated to ourselves and to our companies that this we had a we had a proof of concept. We demonstrated that we could actually convey information back and forth, and that to me was the ultimate answer to my toilet seat problem. That I could actually put a program into a computer including the toilet seat spec. And it would not be forgotten because computers are really good at two things. They're really good at calculating and they're really, really good at remembering. Better than architects, better than anybody. So at the end of the year, Autodesk, guess what? They said, well, thank you very much. We think we'll just take this concept and put out a new Autodesk product and everybody will come to us and yeah. buy it. <laughs> And the other members of the consortium said, well, oh, hang on, not so fast. We don't think that works. And there's a reason that one company cannot dominate this market um, so totally because there are infinite numbers of little bits of software and ideas. For example, I, uh, we're all used to these days uh, having little pieces of software that we use, a little that, that do specialized things. Uh, calculate the heat gain when you have the sunlight on one side of a house or a building, or calculate the, the, the lighting load. Uh, when you have the sun out and you have, you have lights on in the room, do you really need them? 
there, there are infinite numbers of these things. The acoustical load, uh, whether or not a building is green, uh, how green you can make your building. There's specialized software for that these days. And it's, it's limitless. It's up to the human imagination. One company can't possibly do that. So what we need, we 12 companies, we were, this was before the internet was really cooking and before BIM, but we all knew that this interoperable standard had to be open, that is, so that anyone could use it. Our idea was we make some little kernel of, of technology that anybody can have for free and write software to it. And if you write software to it and I write software to it, you and I can speak and communicate fully, even if you're speaking Swahili and I'm speaking English. That was our big idea, that it was kind of like a universal translator. It would translate between languages, it would translate from architect speak to contractor speak, and from contractor speak to, um, to uh, building equipment suppliers and building, building parts suppliers and so on. And ultimately, as we got into it, the owner became part of it too, that the owner is the owner of the building. Once we've designed and built a building, the owner needs to operate it. And instead of a big room full of instruction manuals, what if the owner got uh, some owner software for operating the building that had the advantage of everything that the architect, the contractor, and the engineers did so that uh, if something broke, the owner could have all the information necessary to get it repaired or replaced. They would know who the manufacturer was, what the model number was, when it was installed, how much it cost, what does it weigh, what are its operating characteristics and so on, so that fixing and repairing and taking care of buildings would be also improved. I actually did a calculation of my own. Um, I've given a little presentation many times called Bim Bam Boom, um, in which the architect uses BIM, building information modeling, uh, to give to the contractor that model. The contractor turns it into a BAM model, building assembly model, and adds all the necessary parts and pieces to assemble that BIM model into a finished building. And the owner gets the BAM model that includes BIM and gets a model to, to, to optimize operations called Building Operations Optimization Model, or BOOM, BIM, BAM, BOOM, and actually working with a couple of consultants calculated that if we did this properly, we would save enough money in a 30-year building operation to basically pay for the building, be like getting a building for free. And that's the real promise of this. So uh, I left the AIA behind. I'm still an AIA member. I'm, I'm a fellow in the AIA. I'm proud of the AIA, but we have to talk to more people. We started Building Smart as an open organization. I became the chapter chair of the US chapter that was founded with these 12 companies. We took, uh, Ian and I, and one other person, took trips to Europe and Asia because we said, you know, the the design and construction world is becoming international. We're as likely to use Japanese steel for a building as we are US steel, uh, or German elevators as we are American elevators. So this for this really to work, this needs to be international in scope. We were audacious to do this, but we were having a great time.
we went to Europe and uh, met. Uh, we had a different country every day. It was like the, if it's Wednesday, it must be Paris. The, the last, we went to five countries in five days. The last stop was Rome. I'll tell you that little funny story. We had a little video that we prepared called the end of Babel. You remember Babel was biblical, where in the Bible, God made everybody speak with different tongues so they couldn't understand each other. And uh, we said, this is the end of Babel. And we had a movie or a little video of this. We played it for the Italians like we did for everyone else. They translated it among themselves. Some of them spoke English, some did not. At the end of the conversation, we made a little presentation. And uh, then they said, well, if you'll excuse us, we want to have a short, brief conversation among ourselves in Italians. We, we said, of course. So they started talking and as things would happen, they got into a big argument, all in Italian with lots of hand-waving and gesturing. And it lasted so long, we had planned to go to the Vatican Museum to see the Sistine Chapel ceiling. And uh, after they took so long that by the time they finished, we thanked them, we got out of there, got a taxi and went to the Vatican Museum and it was closed because it was too late. But the result of this was that we started uh, an organization to do what I've just described. And if it sounds a little fuzzy, it is. Uh, this is not intended to be something that you would see in your daily life. It's a little bit like this. Um, if you use your cell phone, you don't have to go through an operator anymore to call a different state or a different country. You just dial the number and that's it. But beneath all of that, there is a bunch of technology and a protocol that says, let's connect the China um, and the British and the American and the French and so on. Let's connect the whole world phone system by some common dialing and protocols and common country codes so we can all communicate. And uh, it's a bit like that, except it's actually more complicated because connecting up a bunch of phone numbers, computers are really good at that, at connecting up a bunch of architects, engineers, and contractors. That's, that's actually a bigger problem. Um, but we started by calling our organization um, the International Alliance for Interoperability. What a jawbreaker, the IAI. <laughs> and uh, I used to joke that it was the AIA turned inside out because that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. And finally, uh, we realized nobody knew what the hell we were talking about. So we rebranded ourselves a few years later as Building Smart. And uh, of course we made it modern. We, we connected the two words together. And building is, the is it's not a smart building like a building that's smart enough to know when to turn lights off. It's, it's the art of building, it's the art of, and the science of designing and constructing and operating buildings. Um, and if you're if you're building smart, you're not building as one of my colleagues said, oh, that's very cool. He said I, the guy from GSA said, I love that because if you're not building smart, you're building dumb and nobody wants to do it the dumb way. So it is called building smart. And um, we we started building smart. Well, we started IAI in 1995. So that's been 25 years. This is our 25th year, uh, 2020. And uh, we have grown to an organization across the globe. We have chapters in 23 countries 
all across Europe, uh, Asia, and the Middle East and Australia. Um, the only places that we haven't established chapters are in South America and Africa. Uh, but those will come. There's a great deal of interest. We get new chapters all the time. The latest two are uh, Turkey, uh, Russia is a chapter. Uh, we've got a new Middle Eastern chapter now that's that's uh, that's got entrance status. And what do we do at Building Smart? Because um, most people that are in Building Smart are not techies. We're architects and engineers and contractors and so on. We uh, we tell the techies what we need to operate our business. Um, and we're operating now. We started as with a very big focus on design because we started with with architects and the design process. Then we got big into engineering and construction. Now some owner organizations have joined us, big ones. Um, there's a and we've organized inside of Building Smart. We have what are called rooms where people work together to develop standards for their industry that we can then write technical language to. Um, and we have very vigorous, for example, rail room. Now, railroading isn't a big thing in this country like it is in Europe and Asia, but the rail room is quite vigorous. And there are now, they are now developing digital standards for um, what we call use cases. How does a, how do you get a train track to approach a switch or how far do you bank it on a curve? And we're developing digital international standards for rail use, including most rails, except in this country are electric now. So how do you do the overhead electric and what's the voltage and how do you convey that electricity and so on? So it's, it's everything you can imagine about an industry that is developed as a use case that's then converted into little bits of, of software that are added to our, our, our international exchange standard. The exchange standard that you may have heard of, some of your, your listeners may have heard of, is called IFCs. It's a technical term, doesn't mean much to anybody. It should be invisible to the end user like an architect or an engineer, but the IFCs, uh, it's a technical word, it means industry foundation class. It's a bit of software at the very bottom of the software that's all stacked on top of one another to make it useful. And industry foundation classes allow uh, Autodesk, uh, Revit, to talk to Bentley system software or to, uh, or to ARCHICAD and to engineering software and to contractor software and so on. Um, my preferred name for it, because we, this is a cooperative venture in a big international nonprofit, Building Smart International, I call IFC's International Friendship Club, because the only way to build a standard across international boundaries is to become friends first. So we, we do a lot of meeting. The coronavirus has put a real dent in that, but we're meeting very vigorously in a virtual way. We just can't have a drink together after work. That's, and that's an important piece of it, isn't it? That's a key part of it. <laughs> if you if you have a meal, if you break bread together, you become friends. And if you have a drink together, or maybe two, you become fast friends. Right. So Building Smart International today, um, there are thousands of people that are members. Uh, our last big conclave was in Beijing 
before the coronavirus hit, we had 3,000 people at the conference and 30,000 people online. Um, the rooms are vigorous. There are there are eight rooms uh, filled with people uh, having good discussions, sometimes heated about the proper way to drill a tunnel through a mountain and what kind of digital standards we need. And um, we've got a, one, one of our rooms is a building room. Um, it's probably, frankly, the least vigorous. And I think it's because of the sorry state of the building industry. Uh, we have an airport room where airport owners get together and think about an airport for a minute. It's got runways. They have, uh, so it has to do with airline airplane navigation for, for safe distances for takeoff and landing and taxiways and so on. There's also a terminal building and maintenance buildings that are that are buildings. They, they, they might have planes attached to them, but they're buildings. They have to keep the rain out and so on. Um, and there's usually an interface with road and maybe rail to connect the airport up to the rest of the community. So um, these are big, giant projects that sometimes in the take years to actually develop the standards all the way through. It's quite exciting, uh, and uh, I find it extremely helpful uh, to our industry. I don't, uh, I don't think, do I think the, there's a room for, sure, I think there's room for an AIA. The AIA should not go away, but I think architects and others in the profession need to see a broader view of who we are and who our natural partners are. And that's what Building Smart is about, making it easier to work across with people that we uh, that we work with and we, we, we need to work with a lot more closely and a lot better. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's a huge endeavor. We're still working on, on many parts of this, uh, but we published the IFCs uh, again, our kernel of software, our international translator, we're now in version four and working on version five. And it keeps getting bigger and better um, and more and more useful. Some countries in Europe have adopted IFCs and just said, okay, if you're gonna build a building or build a railroad, you have to use this. The United States, we have not done that yet. Although Ashto, the American let's see, American Association of State Highway Transportation Officials, people that build roads have now adopted IFCs for road building in the US and they're forming a road room uh, with, within Building Smart to collaborate with other road, uh, uh, road authorities around the world. So what we're finding is that there's better take up of this idea of interoperability and full exchange of software uh, data between big infrastructure users than there is in the building industry. What we need is a big champion, some big giant building owner like GSA or somebody, U.S. military to step forward. The little, uh, the little players that we have and even big companies like HOK are little compared to these behemoths. So um, we're, we're working away on it and uh, even though there's the coronavirus now and the whole world seems locked down, the entire month of May, which is uh, what starts on Thursday or something, there is a there is a go to meeting seminar 
more or less continuously through the month of May for all these rooms. So we're, we are still working and uh, Building Smart is, uh, there's a lot of volunteers. We have a small core staff, mostly based in the UK and in Europe um, with uh, one person in Asia, but it's mostly volunteers getting together saying, our industry needs this. Let's make this work together. This episode is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT and Gusto. You know, it might be a while before we start attending trade shows again. So what's your plan? What's your plan to stay up to date with new building products and building materials, information, all of that stuff that you find when you go to your expo? RCAT works with leading manufacturers to showcase their products and host their technical data. You can see what's new from your favorite manufacturers or find a product that you didn't even know you needed, just like you do when you walk the floor at your favorite expo. Looking for a way to keep up with your continuing education requirements? Did you know that RCAT works with manufacturers to list their latest continuing education courses so that you can get those credits while you stay at home? And best of all, like everything RCAT does, it's free. No payment, no subscriptions, no registration. You don't even need to give them your email. It's all there waiting for you for free. Use RCAT to keep up with the latest and greatest architectural products and let them know that we sent you so they know that you're a member of the Entree Architect community. Visit RCAT today at RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. RCAT.com. I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur architect because I'm a small firm architect too. I know what it's like to wear all those hats. And some of those hats are great, but some, like filing taxes and running payroll, not so great. That's where our friends at Gusto come in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for small businesses like ours. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and simple management tools all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your taxes so you don't have to worry about it. And when you're ready to add on health benefits or a 401k for your team, they can do that too. Easy, no stress. Those old school clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work, but Gusto is. So let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do, like being an architect. Members of the Entree Architect community receive three months free when you run your first payroll. Try a demo today and see for yourself at gusto.com architect. That's gusto.com architect. RCAT and Gusto. Please visit our platform sponsors today. Let them know that Entree Architect sent you and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. I do have a question and, and it's not about the technology part. I think that's pretty straightforward. It's, it's essentially the biggest, most important organization that many of us have never heard of. That it's something that's, that's, that's working behind the scenes with everything that we are doing as architects and builders and, and contractors and manufacturers and everybody. Um, I love the mission. The thing that fascinates me are these rooms and bringing these people together. Um, it's hard enough to bring an architect and an owner and a contractor together, just those three parties to build one building. I could not imagine bringing <laughs> multiple people who have, this is the way that I've been doing it for the past 40 years. This is the right way to do it. And now you have, 50 to 100 people, all with that, this is the right way to do it. 
uh, coming together to come up with one way to do it and agreeing on that. How do you do that? Right. Well, that is that's the secret sauce. And I actually think what I said about the International Friendship Club is literally true. When we started our rail room, I can remember it vividly. We had uh, we had it started out as mostly Europe, Western European rail companies. Deutsche Bahn, that's a German rail, uh, French rail, uh, Swedish rail, and almost everyone except British rail. Uh, and they were all bickering back and forth. And the Germans were the big dog in the in the in the room. German, the Germans were were building more rail and people were naturally worried about the Germans dominating things. So it was politics as usual. Right. Then we got an inquiry from China Rail. Can we come and join the organization and join the room? We really want to develop standards and we don't want them to be just China standards. We want international standards. Now China, let's be really clear about this. If the standards are international, all these companies that know how to design and build rail become export industries. They'd love to come to the U.S. and build a high-speed rail to connect one city in the U.S. with another. All we'd have to do is pay them the money. They'll gladly do it. But they they are aided in this, and so is every company, if the standards become international. So they're accepted broadly and widely. And so, of course, we said, well, please come in. They came in with... Uh, a large team of people. Uh, a few of them spoke English. English, yes, let me back up. Uh, how do you get a room full of people from different countries together with different customs and different languages? Well, fortunately for us that uh, from, from America, most of the world has adopted English as the language of business. So English is the adopted language, the official language of building smart. So when someone comes who doesn't speak English, they have to have someone to translate for them. The Japanese do this beautifully. They, they're Japanese young people mostly that speak good English. They write every single word down and then go back to Japan and translate every single word back into Japanese. So it's marvelous to see. The Chinese came into the railroom and all of a sudden the Germans weren't the big dogs anymore. Yeah. China has built more high-speed rail in the last decade than exists in all of the world to date. They built more high-speed rail, just listen, think about that, more high-speed rail in the last 10 years than exists in Japan and Europe combined, which is the other places where there's high-speed rail. And uh, they're still building, they're still building. Uh, so they were the big dogs. And all of a sudden, the game changed. Uh, the Germans weren't the big dogs, and the Europeans were a little bit intimidated by the Chinese coming in. But it turned out the leader of the Chinese delegation was Madame Shen, a woman who understood this well and took great pains to put everybody at ease, that we want to work with you as a partner. We're not here to dominate, and we want to learn, and we want to, we want to contribute. They actually gave Building Smart they had developed on their own a candidate standard for uh, how to operate a rail. They just yielded, gave that up to Building Smart and said, we'd be glad to give that to you, make it our possession, 
as a candidate standard. And in fact, the railroom has relied on large bits of it to help develop the railroom standards that are being developed today. So at the end of the day, Mark, people don't work well together until they become friends. It takes, it takes patience. It takes those bonding dinners, drinks after work. It takes a good leader. Each room uh, has a leader uh, that's responsible for herding cats and getting people organized. Um, the room leader uh, for, for the, the rail room is a very adept, talented man from Austria, actually, who speaks good English with a German accent. Uh, and uh, uh, you, you learn to get along with people. You learn to listen to what somebody else has already done. It's an amazing, it's a, it's a bit like building a United Nations from scratch, except we don't have any politicians. Yeah. It's just architects and engineers and, and uh, contractors and owners. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I was thinking that the, uh, the global politicians have a lot to learn from building smart. I think actually, uh, yes, they do. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. So we're very proud of this, uh, that, um, that these rooms are now, by definition, a room cannot be just one country. You have to have more than, at least two countries have to join together to even initi initiate a room. Uh, our airport room was one of the newest. It was initiated by, uh, by uh, the Dutch. Um, and uh, now there are, I think, 27 airports around the world in multiple continents. And they've started to get a real head of steam. And the idea, these, these are user-driven. These are our customers. Think about this. As architects, these people are our customers. Or if you're an architect, an engineer, or a contractor, you would give your right arm to have your, your clients in the same room with you. Well, here they all together developing standards with us for how airports and modern airports need to be designed, constructed, and operated that are digital and that have global uh, acceptance. The other thing, uh, speaking of global acceptance, you've all probably heard of ISO, the International Standards Organization, headquartered in Geneva. Well, Building Smart is a standards organization too, uh, but we don't just hold standards, we create them. So we have a, a, a liaison relationship uh, with ISO. And we also have uh, a contract uh, relationship with, with CEN, uh, C-E-N, that's the Centre de Europe, uh, de Europe de, uh, something about standard. Anyway, it's a French word for the European standards. It's a, it's a European Union standards organization. So we work with these standards organizations as well with as a liaison. And uh, ISO now regularly adopts our latest IFCs as ISO standards, giving them, a, let's say, a, an endorsement that uh, you can go to your country's government and say, well, look, these have been adopted by ISO, so you should be more comfortable in accepting it as having been through some kind of rigorous process. So um, yes, we've we've done this, uh, I can't believe it, just a bunch of architects and engineers, <laughs> but we did. And uh, it's really it's really a wonderful thing to see. I wish your listeners could be with 
could just see, be in one of these rooms or one of these meetings to see the electricity of, uh, of the, the, the spark of people creating something together in a cooperative way and then having a beer after work and uh, becoming better acquainted. No matter what country you're from, everybody loves beer. Yeah. So yes, it's it's it is really an international friendship club, and uh, we do our damnedest to keep politics out, um, because we think that will slow things down. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure it would. Much like the Olympic committees, you know, in in order to even have the Olympics, they have to have certain rules and certain standards in order to continue yeah. with what they're doing. You have a very similar challenge with bringing building the building worlds together uh, with all those influences and, and beliefs uh, they have to set some of that aside in order to come to an agreement on what they're going to focus on and what they're going to achieve. That is, that is quite true. Um, uh, yes. If you really want to achieve something together, you have to have, there is a give and take to this, but actually it's something that architects are very good at. We are used to weighing, just think about this, Mark. Uh, architects are used to weighing different parameters in designing a building to come up with the the uh, the most optimal result, whether it's uh, getting more more apartments on one apartment block or whether it's taking advantage of the sun or wh- whatever your criteria is. Uh, that's what we've learned to do. And working this way is actually a big joyous design process to me uh i'm not a techie i don't under i couldn't write a word of code if you if my life depended on it but getting people together in a room and forging a way forward is a lot like working as a designer building a consensus around the right way forward with the design so it 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 feels familiar yeah i can understand that is is does the organization have certain goals and deadlines, or is it just progressing? Uh, we do, yes, as we've grown up. Well, at first, and this has been an evolution, Mark, when we started, <clears throat> it was all about one thing and one thing only. We were we were totally focused. We knew that three-dimensional geometry would be coming to the world of software. At, at, again, at the time we began, yeah. all the all the architects were using 2D CAD software. That was all that there was. So we began developing um, mediums for IFCs for geometry, three-dimensional geometry. Uh, and uh, that was the first product. And it took uh, took 18 months actually to do it. And we had to pay some talented technical people to define uh, cylinders and and cylinders with holes in them, like a pipe, and curved surfaces and squares and so on, a lot of geometry stuff. Once that was finished and published, almost every software company, you wouldn't know this, nor do you need to, almost every software company uses it in their own software, whether they're using it to interoperate with somebody else's, just because it's convenient and easy to use because it's a good base tool. Right. But we're proud of that. We started with geometry, and I thought to myself, oh, geometry is the thing. If we could just model buildings in three dimensions, we'd solve so many of the conflict problems that we have as architects, not understanding when the duct and the beam are going to collide and and so on. 
And um, I was wrong. That was only the beginning. What we're now doing, if you just think about this a minute, buildings are made out of mostly manufactured products. What if we could take all the information in a product, uh, like a door, let's say, okay, let's make a door or a window, anything. Um, and let's embed that door or window with all the information necessary for somebody to use it uh, as a design. Uh, so I could put the door in a wall, door knows it needs to be in, in a wall and some kind of a, in some kind of a door frame. It knows it needs a lock set and hinges. And it, it, uh, it knows if it needs to have a fire rating or if it needs to be exterior rated as a door, it knows if it needs to be painted or if it needs to have anodizing and so on, or if it has a window, it knows all of that. And all that information is available right down to who's gonna manufacture that door, what its model number is, what does it weigh when it's shipped? Um, what is it rated for in terms of weather, the U rating and so on. So uh, what we've now discovered, it's more than so much more than geometry. We are dealing with, and fortunately computers are really good at this, we are dealing with an ocean of information about the things that go into buildings, an ocean. And uh, if all that ocean of information could be properly managed and conveyed from the architect to the engineers to the contractor and then to the owner, we would have a fully integral process. My goal in this, Mark, is very simple. It's not just to change the way the world works. It is, I'm still an architect. I want to liberate us architects. Um, how much time do we spend designing versus how much time do we spend coordinating, producing the documents, coordinating with the contractor and so on. Well, schematic design is still roughly 15% of the work and design development may be 20%, but a lot of architects that are practicing what I'll call defensive architecture tend to reuse a design that works well, maybe tweak it a little bit in order to make a little bit more money and squeeze out a little more profit maybe, but design is suffering because all these other demands have grown over the years that since I've been practicing, the demands for you know environmental um, conformity and green buildings and ever more complex building codes and so on. So my idea about this is I want us to liberate ourselves as architects for what we do best, which is design. What if we, instead of spending 15% of our time designing, what if we could spend 30% designing, really getting design. And what if as we designed, we had little bits of software helping us so we would know how the, how the energy consumption changed as we, mo as we mod modified the design or how, the, how green the building became or less green it became as we designed so that we could actually do what we went to school to do and let the computer take care of all that Frankly, most architects don't like the other stuff, which is the, the coordination and the making sure that the that things fit together and so on. What if more of that could be done with smart software and it could be left to us to actually be designers? And I'm not talking just about a pretty face for a building. I'm talking about design all the way through a building. If I'm designing a house, if it's for me, I can tell you right now, I want the master bedroom to be on the east side of the house 
because I like to have the sun coming in the window in the morning and so on. And you can go right on down the line with detailed criteria so that we can do a, we can do a job like Steve Jobs did with the iPhone to make it more and more useful and more elegant and not just rushing through design so that we can have enough time to practice defensive architecture and grousing about it all the way along. So I want to liberate us architects so we can do what we were trained to do. It sounds like a, a, a beautiful world. It sounds like a great place for <laughs> architects and, and not only you know from the architect's point of view, but the world's point of view, to have, a, a, have more design in our world will only improve the world. And so uh, yes. not only are you liberating the architects, you're liberating the world uh, in the way that we're living and, and the buildings that we, we live in. So um, I applaud your mission. I, uh, I'm fascinated by it. I did not know anything about Building Smart before we had our conversation. So thank you for informing us and educating us. Um, uh, before we wrap up, I, I want to know, and I asked you this question last time as well, um, and I, and I want, wonder if it's a different answer this time, but if there was one thing that you could suggest to a small firm architect to do today, right now, to yeah. uh, build a better business for them into the future, what would it be? Okay. You know, Mark, if I could remember what I said the last time, I might repeat it, but I don't exactly remember. So let me just say it this way. Yeah. <clears throat> I think small firms um, have a huge advantage of being nimble. Uh, big firms are not. Big firms, uh, HOK takes a long time to turn that big ship, but small firms can change quickly. And I would say if you're a small firm, look for ways to, to turn that, that being nimble to your advantage. Uh, if I were, if I were in your shoes and I were running my own small firm, I would look for ways to actually do such an outstanding in-depth job with design that it, that it made my reputation. I had a steady flow of people saying, gee, I want to work with you. How do I do that? I think I have to put the right effort in and I have to be smart enough and clever enough, maybe even with a contractor as a partner instead of a, of an opponent. Design bid build, I think is on its way to being dead. I think design build or even better, a collaborative process where the architect and the contractor are partners. If I could have my contractor help me with the complexity, I could spend more time actually getting a more thoughtful design. And if I did, <clears throat> not only would the world be better, but my practice would prosper. So that's what I would do. Sounds like a good, good, good way to move, move forward as a small <laughs> firm. I, I appreciate that. Um, his name is Patrick McLamey. You can learn all about him on his website, mclamey.com. It's M A C. L-E-A-M-Y dot com, uh, And you can learn all about Building Smart at buildingsmart.org. Uh, we'll have links to all of that on our show notes. Also, his book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm. These two episodes have had so much information and so much value for architects across the, the, the profession. Um, the, the book is designed for us. It's written for small firms. Uh, designing a world-class architecture firm by Patrick McLamey. We'll have a link to that as well on the show notes. Patrick, I really enjoy my time talking with you. The last episode and this episode, you are fascinating. You have so much knowledge to share. Your passion comes through. Um, and I appreciate you for taking the lead 
in this massive mission of building smart. Thank you for your part in the profession, not only with HOK and what you've done for the world through HOK, but what you're doing for the world through building smart. I applaud you and I appreciate your, your leadership. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for spending some time with me here at Entree Architect Podcast. It's absolutely my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. What an inspiration. I love speaking with Patrick. He always makes me want to, to think bigger and achieve more for the profession of architecture. Uh, it's just so motivating. You've been listening to episode 332 with Patrick McLaney. Uh, the link to share is entrearchitect.com slash episode 332. It's also the link to grab the show notes for everything we talked about today. entrearchitect.com slash episode 332. And don't forget to visit gablemedia.com for more great podcasts just like this one. Podcasts for architects, engineering, construction. Not only will you find me there, but also our second Entree Architect podcast, Jeff Eccles podcast, Build Your Brand with Jeff Eccles. Spaces podcast is there. Speak podcast is there. And our two new shows, Practice Disrupted with Evelyn Lee of Practice of Architecture and Janine Chastain. Great podcast about disrupting the profession in a very positive, good way. Practice Disrupted. And the Troxel podcast with Evan Troxel, the co-host of Arcuspeak, has his own show about technology and the future of the profession. Fascinating long-form uh, content, long-form conversations that Evan is having. Super, super interesting at Troxel Podcast. It's all there waiting for you to listen and subscribe at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Gable Media, leave off the E, G-A-B-L media.com. Be well, my friends. Be healthy, be happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening today. I really mean it. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always 
questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name <laughs> we did it guys oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere Woo! it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to emerging and chart your own path to architectural success Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.